Well, hello, and welcome back to AASR Live. Uh, my name is Guy Stevens. I'm the host of the show here. Really happy to have you joining us today. It's hard to believe it's been uh, two weeks since our last presentation. Uh, really excited to be back with you today. Uh, those of you that are not familiar with uh, who I am or what the Alliance is, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a background. Uh, my name is Guy Stevens. I'm the founder and executive director of the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. Uh, the Alliance was a group that I formed uh, a little over three and a half years ago. Uh, really, the the point of the Alliance was to bring people together so that we can look at uh, kind of policies and laws and practices around the use of restraint seclusion uh, and try to make a positive difference. Uh, our work really started out heavily focused on restraint seclusion, but I would say expanded into restraint seclusion, suspension, expulsion, corporal punishment, all the things that are often happening in schools. Uh, things that are avoidable, things that we can be doing differently to better support kids, teachers, and staff. So that's really our goal is to try to make a positive difference. And part of the way we do that is through these educational programs that we do every two weeks. Uh, we've got a tremendous library now, uh, and I'm excited every time we do one of these because we're adding uh, a really uh, great uh, viewpoint, experiences, and uh, information to help people uh, really do better. I'm a firm believer when we can do better, we have to do better. And uh, that's what it's all about. How can we really improve things for our kids, our teachers and our staff? So I'm excited as always, uh, whenever we do these, I'm like, oh, we've got a really great event um, because I get to talk to people whose work I greatly admire uh, and who are doing amazing things to uh, change the world in positive ways. And today is no exception. We're going to be talking to Michael McKnight, uh, who's joining us for a special interview. Uh, Michael has a long history in education. I'm going to tell you all about him in a moment. Uh, I had the uh, privilege of meeting him recently as well and, and learning more about the work that he's doing. I will let you know uh, that as always, today's session is being recorded. So this will be made available after the fact on Facebook, YouTube, and as an audio podcast and LinkedIn now too. We are, we're also on LinkedIn. Uh, we're doing an interview format today. So we're going to just really be having a conversation and you're here with us. You're here part of the conversation. So I want to encourage you to, first of all, introduce yourself. I uh, see we have a number of people that are already on live. If you're on live, uh, tell me who you are, where you're from. Uh, I get excited when we do these and I see people now that I know by name. Uh, I know where you're from. Uh, I know that you've been part of our community for a while and it's always exciting to see that. Uh, and it's always exciting for our guests as well to see where people are joining us from. Uh, I always tell people that we have kind of a international audience. We have people from all over the world that join us. So uh, feel free to ask questions at any point during the interview. I'll be keeping an eye on your questions and uh, comments and we'll bring those up during the interview. And uh, with that, let me go ahead and get started and introduce Michael. Uh, Michael, hey there, good to see you. Hello. Uh, I'm going to go through your introduction here, so bear with me for a second. Okay. Uh, you've got a um, you've been doing a lot of work for a long time to to really mm -hmm. do some amazing things. So let me kind of trace through some of this. Uh, you have been working for the New Jersey Department of Education in the Cape May County Office of Education for 17 years. Uh, in those years, you've served as a resource for school districts in the county, as well as throughout the southern uh, portion of New Jersey. Uh, beyond the work of the Department of Education, uh, you provided training to educators, parents, community members, and school leaders. And I was lucky enough to be part of one of those trainings recently. Uh, prior to joining the Department of Education, um, you had 24 years of experience working in schools. Michael, you must have been very young when you started work. I'm, I'm thinking five here by all these years. Uh, you were a special education teacher for 14 years, uh, working with emotionally and behaviorally troubled adolescents. 
you uh, were also an administrator at Atlantic County Special Services School District uh, for 10 years. These years are really adding up here now, Michael, uh, for the programming for troubled students ages 5 through 21 uh, that were removed from the local school district. You have a passion uh, for creating and supporting uh, reclaiming environments for at-risk children and youth, as well as the adults who serve them. Uh, you currently provide professional development to practicing educators, and uh, you also work as an adjunct uh, instructor at Stockton University, uh, where you get to uh, teach and learn uh, with future educators. I love that, with future educators. Uh, and your current focus is on uh, joining with schools to create school-level resiliency teams uh, with a focus on school districts working with children uh, and youth who carry uh, into school toxic levels of stress and trauma. Uh, you have also um, worked with uh, our other friend, uh, Dr. Lori Desitels, and co-authored two books, um, Unwritten, the story of a living system about transformation uh, and their most recent effort, The Eyes Are Never Quiet. I actually had that one sitting on my desk here, so cool. I'll hold that one up here. Uh, listening beneath the behaviors, such an important thing, of our most troubled students. Uh, you view yourself not as an expert, but as a learner. I, I had to disagree with that. I mean, you, you certainly are an expert, uh, but I, I, I'm with you. Um, I feel like this is a journey that we're always learning on mm -hmm. uh, and a teacher who has always enjoyed building strength-based cultures with others. So um, quite an introduction. You have been doing this for a long time. And, and when I say this, uh, really what I mean is making a really positive difference for kids that very often most need the help. And, you know, Michael, I'm sure that one of the things that um, really probably makes you very happy and satisfied in this work is knowing the lives that you've made a difference in. So we're really pleased to have you here today, Michael. Well, thank you, Guy. That was uh, uh, quite an introduction. I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, when you hear that, I have been doing this for quite a bit of time now, and uh, it's been fun. Uh, it's been quite a journey. Uh, and I, uh, I, I uh, have... Uh, often uh, just really thank the um, the young people that uh, that I was trying to teach um, uh, for pushing me to continue my learning which which really you know uh, hasn't stopped yet so uh, I learned something new often and 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 uh, and I love being able to share it with uh, practicing teachers as well as future teachers it's such an important point um, it's easy for people to become stuck in what they know and what they've been doing, mm. even when things aren't working. And I think it's so important to be able to kind of mm. continue that voyage along the way and, and always, I guess, have a, a certain humility of realizing, like, I haven't figured it all out. I'm still trying. But, you know, and, and you know, Michael, I, I very much get that with you through your career that you continue to uh, learn and, and do better. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that's benefited a lot of uh a lot of individual lives along the way. So I appreciate what you've been doing. As I mentioned to you, we do have a, um, and, and good, my, my people are showing up here on cue. Uh, we, we've got people here from uh, all over the world. Uh, we've got a friend here, Anna, who is in New Zealand, uh, says good morning from Auckland. So in Auckland, it is probably what, 6 a.m., 7 a.m., something like that wow. uh, tomorrow. So Friday morning. Uh, Anna's actually somebody I've talked to a number of times, uh, you know, great, great individual working in schools, working with kids. Uh, we have Floyd Hinman, uh, another great person here joining us from Oklahoma uh, and uh, uh, glad to be learning with us. Uh, we have somebody from Ottawa, Canada. 
uh, and uh, someone from Massachusetts and from London. So we've got a couple of people joining us. And if you're just now joining, uh, let us know who you are and where you're joining us from. Uh, Anna has corrected me. It's 838 uh, in Auckland <laughs> on Friday morning. So wow. uh, people are getting you at all different kinds of times of the day. So why don't we go back a little bit in time? So I gave you um, a pretty uh, comprehensive um, uh, introduction, but of course, what, what's not there are kind of the details. So, you know, I know a bit about the work that you're doing today, but I'd love to share with others kind of what your journey has been and, uh, you know, kind of how you've gotten to where you are. So would you tell us a little bit about kind of how you got on this road in education and, uh, you know, what what has been transformative for you along the way? Well, I, yeah, a great question. Um, I started uh, teaching. Um, I went to school and I, I got certified as a teacher in uh, elementary education and special education. Elementary was a K to eight, but the special ed certificate allowed me to teach really K to 12. Um, and uh, at the time, uh, this was like 1978, um, you know, I didn't even realize that special ed was just a, uh, uh, the, the special ed laws were just a few years old back then. And uh, so I, I decided uh, I was I was raised in a pretty blue collar uh, household and decided, well, I might as well get two degrees for one and uh, had really no intention of teaching special education. Uh, uh, I uh, uh, went through the, through the programs, and I really enjoyed um, the special education student teaching that I was doing. And I said, "Geez, okay, I, I think I could could do this." And um, graduated uh, and um, got out and got my first job teaching what was then and and still in most states called uh, emotionally disturbed. Uh, children and adolescents. Uh, my, uh, I always taught uh, adolescents, middle school and high schoolers, uh, and and began my career. And uh, quite honestly, the th first uh, two, two and a half, three years of that career were a nightmare. Mm -hmm. I, I was nowhere near prepared uh, to to walk into doing. Uh, uh, what I was seeing in these classrooms, um, and what what you know, I was I was finding myself arguing with kids and and getting into arguments over silly stuff, and kids coming in explosive off the off the school bus. So uh, it was eye opening, uh, and uh, and uh, it started me on a path to really okay, what what is this, and and why can't I do it? Um, and, and, uh, really drove my learning still does. So, you know, thinking about that, uh, you, you know, you mentioned, it's kind of interesting. You said, well, you know, in the late seventies and of course you're right. I mean, it was, it was the, uh, uh, it was the predecessor to IDEA that mm -hmm. uh, was in 74, 73, somewhere in that time frame. So, you know, special education had not really been, um, been a thing prior to that. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of kids that were not mm -hmm. even welcome into the schools around the country. There were a lot of kids that weren't being served. Um, and, and as I was listening to your description about getting into the classroom and, and feeling like, you know, would you, you weren't really prepared, uh, I was pondering to myself, and I, and I want to throw this question at you, but, you know, has that changed in 40 plus years? Do you think that people that are going into careers now are better prepared or do we still have work to do? Uh, I think we still have even more work to do. Uh, I think, you know, I mean, each state's responsible for, you know, for their teacher certifications and, and it varies, but, uh, but certainly, uh, 
you know, uh, in my opinion, over the last number of decades, the, the preparation continues to be more on the academic side uh, of how do you teach, how do you do instruction in certain content areas um, versus really how do you how do you get along, manage and 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 work with a, a group of up to 25, 30 children in one room. Uh, with all levels, uh, all kinds of issues as they come into school, and and how how are you supposed to be able to do those kind of things? Uh, and I think even today, uh, most teachers that leave our field and and a lot do uh, leave not because they don't know how to teach; they leave because of how to how do I manage these kids? How do I how do I handle my classroom? How do I do this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, your answer didn't surprise me. Um, I, I think you would. I think you would have surprised me if you said, "Well, I think things are a lot better now." But you know, I, I really don't think they are. I mean, and, and I think that, um, you know, thinking about you know some of the issues that, that we focus on uh, a lot here at the Alliance, uh, things like restraint and seclusion. Uh, I think you can come out as a first-year educator having gone through special education programming, and and I don't think be adequately prepared for the kinds of challenges you might have in the classroom, the kinds of behaviors that you might see, uh, how to effectively support kids that are having a difficult time. And, uh, you know, I think that's part of the reason that we see a lot of these punitive things that happen and continue to happen. I mean, wouldn't it be great that over those 40 years plus that things had changed to the point that, um, you know, that wasn't an issue, but, but it is. And, and I think that that really screams to uh, some changes that are still really necessary. I think probably in higher education, of course, I know you're, you're involved in higher ed as well. Um, how do we, how do we make that shift? I mean, you know, again, you know, think about 40 or 50 years. It's like, shouldn't we have gotten this better? Um, how, how do we miss this piece? Because it's critical now, right? It's critical. As you look at people that are leaving the classroom, people that got into education because they want it to be, uh, teachers and and enjoy teaching people that got mastery and learning how to teach subject matters. Um, you know, the people that end up sticking with it and maybe getting the skills they need uh, may continue to love the career, but it, it's, it seems a crime to lose people uh, that maybe we don't have to lose. Um, how could we do better in preparing people for teaching degrees? Well, you know, I think there's a, a number of things that we we need to do differently. Uh, but I, I, I also uh, have, have been around higher ed at least enough to know how difficult it is to change even their programming. Um, and, and I literally could take years to change to change those kind of things. Uh, uh, certainly, uh, we want to uh, get kids into classrooms uh, as quickly as possible with with mentors that, that know what they're doing. Um, and and uh, also we need to have instructors that really I mean, you know, we talk about special education as one thing. And the diversity within the term of special education is enormous. Um, so, so here in New Jersey, for instance, um, we don't even uh, have an undergraduate education degree in special education. You become a regular ed teacher. Um, you can then go out and become a teacher of special ed and then go back to, to get your training as you're learning, as you're teaching. Uh, you know, so it's it's uh, it 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 really is is uh, I think uh, I think a couple of things. Um, uh, I'm I'm all for the inclusion movement, but what we're seeing is we're seeing uh, more and more inclusion, 
and less and less teachers prepared for that inclusion. Right, right. right. Um, you know, so so I think that dynamic, and and I'm sure every state's a bit different, and every program, and teacher training program's a bit different, but. Uh, but certainly, I think for a general OK statement is we've got a lot of um, of teachers in classrooms that are really not not prepared to teach the kids right. that that are in front of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's a huge problem for sure. Well, let's go back to your story. So, you know, those, those first few years were difficult, um, but you began to you or you continued to to learn and and figure out ways to be successful well what uh, changed it for me i'll give yep. you a quick what changed it for yep. me i mean, i i uh i left public school teaching after three years and got a job at then a, a program called vision quest um, which was a residential program uh, for juvenile delinquents uh, and they were literally um, taking kids on on wagon trains. Um, mm-hmm. I, I was uh, out in Arizona. Um, kids uh, would be coming out of jail and then into residential programs. And I was hired as one of the teachers in the residential program. Uh, and I was, gosh, I was young. I was like 25, maybe. Uh, and uh, uh, my friend uh, uh, Karen and I were given a school. We were both young, young teachers and, and said, here you go. Here's the, here's these these young people. Um, but what what turned it around for me was in Vision Quest. Um, we not only taught, we actually covered group homes. We got to live with the kids. Uh, we've got to sit into some of their counseling sessions. And I began to hear um, hear the stories underneath about their lives and, uh, you know, and, and the conditions they've been been living in. And and that really was kind of like a light bulb moment. Uh, you know, you hear terms like uh, emotionally disturbed and you think, oh, oh, what are these kids born like that? No, no. Um, so that began my path into really truly beginning to understand what we now call pain based behavior, mm-hmm. behaviors by by kids. Um, that are really in pain uh, mm-hmm. from the lives they're living. Mm-hmm. So, so that light bulb went off, and you began to kind of understand. You, you know, I'm thinking about um, uh, Storchanker uh, has a, a saying that uh, resonates in my head a lot, which is the idea: if you you see a kid differently, you see a different kid, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. And uh, you know, when you begin to understand the things that a child might have been through how they might have ended up, you know, where they are in front of you at that moment, you begin to understand things differently. But a lot of people don't make that shift. They, they see, uh, you know, the child is giving them a hard time versus a child having a hard time. You know, uh, mm-hmm. they see the child is, is making, um, as all behavior being a matter of choice, right? You know, you need to make better choices, uh, not understanding that, you know, there are kind of those bottom up behaviors that are really driven by our nervous system. So you got that light bulb that, that lets you have some understanding, but I, I would imagine at that point, it took a lot of curiosity to learn more. So how did you go from that, that spark of I'm seeing something different to learning about how to better support the individuals? Because, you know, again, you were talking about a program uh, that you were working in that was probably um, supporting a lot of kids that had had very difficult backgrounds mm-hmm. uh, that um, were probably, well, probably not used to always having people that were empathetically supporting them. Um, so, so how did you begin that journey from that initial spark to, to better support kids? Well, it's a great question. I, you know, I think it was a, a, a step at a time. Um, 
I began to um, uh, to really um, uh, even take some some of these young people on home visits, uh, uh, visit where you know their communities that they lived in, the ones that at least were residents of Arizona. So I got got to do that uh, and really get a, a felt sense of 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 their lives. Um, the other thing I, I chose to do, um, uh, and, and I'm not exactly sure why, but I just chose to stop fighting with kids. Hmm. Um, and, and the thing that I liked about, um, uh, and still do about special education is there is, there is a little bit of room there, um, uh, to be, um, uh, unstandardized as a teacher. Uh, and I, and I didn't, I didn't see my role there as, as delivering, uh, instruction or knowledge to kids. I started to see it more of, of, uh, of, a, of, a uh, a, uh, a, 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 a co, a, a co-mentoring role. Um, and, um, and, uh, you know, I, I really, uh, uh, gave kids, uh, tons of choices, uh, uh, and I, and I, I decided, hey, I, I really don't need to come in and, and force anybody to do anything. Um, and it kind of changed the way I was thinking about discipline, traditional discipline, um, and and um, and saw it. I began to see it even back then as as to need to uh, uh, one connect uh, with these young people, uh, and then two, um, not escalate their behavior. Mm-hmm. Chose not to fight with them. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, and you say that like it's a, a really simple thing, but it's not, right? Because no, it's not. This whole idea behind traditional discipline, um, and 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 by the way, just just to point out real quick, uh, we have a, a mutual friend here on the line with us. Uh, Lori is on, so just said hello oh, to both. So great, great to see Lori there. But <laughs> this idea of kind of traditional discipline um, is still very prevalent today in our schools. So. You know, um, some 40 years ago, you were having these these revelations and thinking, hey, this isn't working. But that traditional approach has persisted where a lot of it is very heavily based on compliance and control, mm-hmm. um, you know, and uh, power struggles. How often and, and just thinking through your career, you know, um, how often have you seen a power struggle that led to a situation that was totally avoidable and unnecessary? Oh, oh, absolutely. I've been in them. <laughs> so, you know, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think those things can uh, quickly escalate. Um, and I, you know, I think again, though, I, I think part of the, part of the issue in teaching is you've got to be able to do a couple of, uh, quite a few things at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you, so you have, you know, 25 young people in front of you, maybe more in some public schools, uh, less in some special ed classrooms. Um, but you have to be able to, um, deliver instruction, which is what you're there for. Right, right. But you, but you also have to be able to almost split your consciousness to be able to do that, but really watch and really uh, watch what, what, um, what these young people are carrying in with them, how they're feeling, uh, what is their temperature, what is their mood. Uh, and, and, and it, I think it takes a, uh, all t- all new teachers a, a little bit uh, of time a couple of years maybe uh, maybe even three to be able to get comfortable enough um, with um, 
with the hard stuff of teaching, when I say hard, I mean, it's the text, it's the materials, it's your lesson plans, it's your grades, all that stuff. And yet really be able to almost automatically do that while your main focus is really on, hey, how are these kids doing? Because I have a lot of them and they can be all over the place at the same time. How do I begin to do that? Um, and that moves us away from discipline and control uh, toward regulation. How do we begin to regulate a group of people? Um, and, and, you know, it's kind of funny because even after I left the classroom and became an administrator in a, in a program, a building full of, you know, about 200 uh, classified kids, five to 21, uh, lots of teachers, lots of aides, lots of bus drivers. Um, I kind of began to see my job as regulating the whole building and the adults within it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I can see how that is really critical. You know, when we talk about the better things you can and should do, I think the the one important thing is it doesn't stop with the students, right? No, uh, anything you're doing, right, right, exactly. <laughs> if you're not doing it with the staff, if you're not as an administrator, you know, helping people through co-regulation, you know, you're not going to get where you need to be. So let, let's tease this apart a little bit. So in your mind, um, what is traditional discipline and what's wrong with it? Uh, traditional discipline is based on the obedience model. Uh, the obedience model is pretty simple. Uh, and, and many of us were raised in it. It's not just schools. Yep. Many of yep. our homes still use the obedience model. It's I'm the adult. You're the kid. I tell you what to do and you do it. I mean, that's the basic obedience model. If you don't, I'm going to cause you pain um, until you comply. Um, the fallacy with the obedience model is 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 uh, really, I mean, you have two choices uh, going through the obedience model. Um, you either comply or you pretend to comply mm-hmm. and, and, and get by. And, and that's what I don't think most people see. Um, you know, at best, you can get um, a, a minimal amount of compliance, particularly with young kids. As you get older kids, um, they begin to push back, um, and 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 then you see the escalations of behaviors on, on over, you know, those tug of wars that uh, that we get in uh, uh, with with kids, and and that obedience model is still pretty entrenched, not just in schools, but I think in many families and many cultures. Mm-hmm. And, and the obedience model also, I like the way you put that, um, doesn't take into account, and this is where we see a lot of our young people, especially our young people with disabilities, uh, who are often on the wrong side of the the, the dis- discipline that comes along with it, uh, is they don't have the skills or ability to meet the needs that are put in front of them. So, you know, if you don't, you know, e- even withstanding the desire to be obedient, if you don't have the ability to do it, it's a really frustrating place to be. And, and we see a lot of kids that are restrained, secluded, suspended, expelled, subjected to corporal punishment, that um, they don't even have the skills to meet the expectations that are being placed on them. And it becomes a really frustrating uh, place for for kids. And then, of course, when that's your expectation, uh, kind of do as I say, and, and kids aren't able to do it, uh, here come the punitive consequences. And then, of course, along with the punitive consequences comes 
trauma, right? Well, absolutely. You know, I mean, schools can be, you know, traumatizing places too. Classrooms can, um, no question about it. I think there, you know, there's again a, a couple of things that 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 um, that we we need to really step back and take a look at. Um, first, what are our expectations academically and behaviorally for the students in front of us? Um, often, I think even in regular ed, they're developmentally off. Um, so, so I think we're asking, uh, many young, young people, um, whether they're classified in special education or in regular ed, uh, to do things they're not, not ready to learn how to do. Uh, we're missing some steps. Um, uh, and then secondly, you know, uh, what are our expectations around, uh, how kids, um, should behave in quotes, what's that should behave. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and I think, um, I think our expectations uh, as we drag the uh, the academic curriculum lower and lower um, actually are causing more problems than they're solving. <laughs> so so let, let's contrast this then. Um, you know, I know that, uh, you know, you and, and Lori and others talk a lot about kind of the the connection based approaches, you know, compassion, connection, you know, moving away from these kind of compliance based uh, approaches. <laughs> Um, what is, what is this other way look like? You know, so you, you have the experience that you've grown into kind of moving away from the, you know, kind of the punitive mindset of the punitive model, the control model, but what does it look like? What, what's, you know, you mentioned some of the elements of it, like co-regulation, but explain how that's contrasted against the kind of the other model you were talking again about. Yeah, I like to put it in maybe two piles. Um, the, the the obedience model is, is a model based off of power over, right? Um, and 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 the the model that I like thinking about and 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 in a simple way, just saying is is power with. Mm -hmm. um, so so how do we uh, collaborate? Um, and how do I provide you enough structure, predictability, and routine, along with choice? Um, and, and, and as we're, as we're living together, um, in this, in this, uh, classroom, uh, that, that I think by the fourth year of, of my teaching career, uh, it dawned on me that really, um, uh, I'm creating a world in this room, right? And I'm in charge of that world, mm -hmm. uh, which is kind of a pretty powerful thought. Um, and, and what do I want that world to be like? Um, and, and, uh, and then how do I begin to do that? How do I begin to establish relationships? So, so with power with, we're talking about everything from, uh, even, uh, how many, uh, uh, positive words I say to you versus kind of negative things. And I'm not even talking about real negatives, but, but often we're, uh, we give a lot of directives as teachers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I want to also, you know, be using language um, that that is uh, that is calming, uh, that is reinforcing, and that and that shows the ch uh, the kids in front of me, hey, I see you and I know you, uh, <laughs> and that can be as simple as, hey, I, I noticed your new haircut, I noticed your new sneakers. I noticed uh, uh, your new tattoo uh, or whatever, um, but um, but being able to, I love the I notice blank uh, ways of really reaching out and connecting with young people. Um, 
I think um, I, I used to, and I still enjoy it when I'm in schools, um, go into the cafeteria and sit down with a group of, of young people eating, which you don't really see the adults doing. Often <laughs> in schools, they're doing lunch duty, but that's about it. They don't even talk right. to each other. Right. I love talking to kids in, in the hallway. Um, noticing them saying, Hey, I noticed you got new sneaks or you got, uh, you know, uh, you know, or even you did, did this extremely well. Uh, so that noticing is really, really important. They're reinforcing words. Um, and, 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 and they go an awful long way because we all want to be seen. Mm -hmm. You know, Michael, this sounds a whole lot like, uh, actually creating authentic relationships, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's what it's all about, right? I mean, you know, really creating, yeah, well, you know, it's funny, you were talking about the, the you know, having lunch with kids and uh, I, we had on uh, Dr. Kevin and Huxhorn um, a few, uh, a few programs ago, uh, Kevin had done a lot of work in uh, healthcare settings, in acute psychiatric settings. And one of the things she talked about was that same idea of staff actually having lunch with uh, the people that were there. And, you know, kind of creating those relationships and, and almost having a more service oriented, uh, you know, rather than treating kids like inmates in a jail, mm -hmm. you know, how about you treat them as, as people that are here to, you know, uh, you know, get educated, but you know, that you're here to help and serve and work with and, you know, <laughs> you know, and it's, you know, it's a perfect opportunity. I mean, I think, you know, you think back and, you know, I'm old, uh, uh, but I remember my, my parents uh, uh, really were very protective of dinner time. Now that that concept is really disappeared, but we can eat lunch with kids in school anytime we want, uh, right, right. you know, and just check in. And even if we're doing lunch duty, just kind of walking around, dropping seeds, you see the same kids every day at the same time, whether it's in the hallway, in the cafeteria, uh, wherever. But, but I think it's important to be able to just notice them and let them know you see them. Um, mm -hmm. Those mm -hmm. little seeds can go a very long way in beginning mm -hmm. to form connections. Uh, mm -hmm. And when we talk about troubled kids, those young people are really relationship resistant. Um, and, and it takes those kind of seeds um, uh, over and over, small seeds, uh, and uh, uh, to begin to build that level of trust. Yeah, and, and you know, you, you talk about kids that, uh, you know, I mean, I think about when you say relationship resistant, I think about kids that, um, have not been in a position where they they felt that they had adults mm -hmm. that they could trust, yeah. and and that that resistance I think comes from those lived experiences where mm -hmm. they have not had those those safe individuals in their lives. So, what might you do to really help a child? You know, when you have that child that has not had that kind of experience, what what aside from persistence, what do you do to help foster that relationship? Well, I think a couple of things we can do. Um, I, I love the concept of check-ins and check-outs with some of those young people. Um, not so much of, did you do your homework, but how are you doing today? Um, let me take your temperature early in the morning. I think uh, it's important for teachers to, 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 as kids are entering their classrooms, to really not be gathering materials that they're gonna use, but really keeping an eye out for young people. 
Um, and really, we talk about, Lori and I both talk about dosing kids um, mm -hmm. with connections. And, and, and we dose all kids, but certain kids need just a little bit more dosing. Mm -hmm. um, and and uh, a little bit more of that goes an extremely long way uh, uh, with, with, with the response you get back. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, you know and, and it takes a little bit of time, but I've never met a, 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 a student that has responded to it um, mm -hmm. uh, yeah well you, you know one, one of the things i'm thinking about as you're you're talking about this is we all do our best for people that we like right so yeah. whether whether it's work or whether it's anything we, we do best for the people that we like and when you're able to create that sense of relational <laughs> safety uh mm -hmm. when you're able to create that authentic relationship you know we we want to please each other right if, if i like you and you treat me well I, I want you know I, I want your positive feedback as well. Um, so I think that authenticity is so important. Uh, Gail here just made a comment: uh, power with rather than power over. William Glaser, love it. Uh, Lori made a similar com, uh, comment: power with. Uh, I love this, Michael. Building the nest. There you go. Yeah. Now, now, what is Lori talking about? Building the nest. Well, Lori, uh, you know, talks early in in her work about uh, uh, creating a nest-like uh, uh, environment within a classroom. Mm -hmm. um, that classroom builds trust and with trust over time comes a sense of belonging. And that's what we're really looking for in the soil, if you will. And I think of classrooms as really we're cultivating the soil where humans thrive. Um, and, and, and belonging is so critical and we know that from Maslow, but we learn, you know, we learn this stuff in psych 101, but when, you, and we all had those courses, but when you see like it in reality, it's like, well, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Um, it means really cultivating an environment, uh, where kids can, can relax, uh, brains learn best in a state of relaxed alertness. Uh, so I want to create an environment in my classroom where we can have that state, um, that state of, of everybody being relaxed, being calm, um, and being ready to learn. That's when that the top part of the learning part of the brain opens up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um, and, and that's what we really want to cultivate. And, mm -hmm. and how, you know, I can do that with my words. I can do that with my activities. I can do that with my pacing. There's so many things to play with. It's like being a weatherman. Um, right. Right. I'm creating the weather. Uh, I, and and uh, what I loved about Lori's work is, is she brings in, you know, uh, those focused attention practices where we can add things to wake kids up as part of our, our job as teachers, everybody, I'm losing the group here. What can I throw in there to wake somebody up? Mm -hmm. Or how do I, how do I teach these young people as, as we're, as we're going through the day uh, to calm themselves down uh, with breath and movement? So those things add to the building of the nest. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what you've been talking about, um, I think is really great guidance um for an educator that might want to change the weather in their classroom right mm -hmm. uh you know like that analogy uh you know i was looking on uh the people that were joining us here and i i see a uh, a great educator i know in the state of oregon uh, named karen who has done some really fantastic work uh working in a um uh, environment where um 
she was supporting a lot of children with disabilities who previously had been getting restrained and secluded a lot. And Karen uh, created a safe environment, a safe place. You know, things like restrained seclusion were, were disappearing and, and vanishing from her classroom. Um, so certainly we know one teacher can make a, a huge difference in, in her class. But let's go on now and put one of your other hats on because you wear a lot of hats through your career so far. You know, as you moved into kind of the, uh, you know, the higher level of administration and with the Board of Education, what can administrators do to build this kind of change or this kind of culture throughout a school? Uh, and what can people at a board level do? Um, you know, working within a, a system to bring about change because we know the the bigger the uh, uh, the target, probably the the heart of the change, right? Uh, changing a classroom, you have a lot of control, but as you go up levels, it can be harder. So we sometimes find great educators working in very punitive systems uh, that become very frustrated, even though they're they're doing great work. So how do you make those changes going up to the next level? Well, you know, I mean, it, it, what you're describing is how I became an administrator at a school. Um, I had uh, I had no intention of ever becoming a school principal. Uh, it was not on my list of things to do. But uh, uh, as, as I was going along, getting my master's degree in special education, uh, they were uh, New Jersey was starting to change their certification requirements to become a principal. Um, and if I didn't, if I didn't do it, then, uh, it would, I would have had to get a whole new master's in school mm -hmm. leadership. So I took uh, an extra five, five or six classes and became uh, certified as a school principal. And then, uh, one thing led to another and I, I had the opportunity to now, uh, uh, run a, 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 a school, so a special services school, uh, uh, that was uh, uh, for kids removed from regular ed, um, uh, ages five to, to twenty-one, and and I immediately kind of recognized that uh, uh, my audience is now the adults. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I, um, I think principals have to uh, become um, great teachers of their of their staff. Uh, they have to know some of this stuff. They don't have to know everything, but they have to know, uh, uh, I think, uh, uh, principals as, as, uh, and leaders as teachers is an important, important role. Uh, and I took that role in our school. Um, and um, and, 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 and um, it allowed me to create the culture that I wanted to see. Um, we had a lot of other trainings going on at the same time um, uh, around all kinds of different things that schools still do, but there, there's rarely, um, whoops, rarely um, uh, focused, sustained training on creating school environments. <laughs> it's hit so or what was that culture you wanted to see? The culture was very similar to um, what I wanted to see in my classroom um, and what I had been playing with by then for 14 years. I had taught that long uh, uh, prior to being uh, 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 becoming a, an administrator. So I, I wanted to see adults treat kids with high levels of dignity and respect, regardless of how kids were acting. Um, and how do we begin to do that? Uh, uh, and 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 what skills do we need to build to be able to do that? 
Um, and, and, uh, and it was a journey that, that really took me to a lot of different trainings that I went out and found um, from uh, some great mentors. Uh, uh, you know, and uh, and I'll include um, a couple of them now. I mean, uh, I I uh, I remember seeing Alfie Cohen years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so I mean, and he was talking about these these kind of things. Gosh, decades and decades ago, um, Alfie was well ahead of his time. Yes, and, he was. Uh, but I mean, I'm I, so frustrated that we haven't caught up with him. <laughs> well, we really haven't, uh, yeah. and yet he was he was talking about a lot of this work a, a number of years ago. Yeah. Um, there were a couple of folks doing discipline with dignity at that time, which was a sh- another shift uh, around how how to do discipline and and do it differently. And then I stumbled into really um, uh, Dr. Nicholas Long uh, and his work uh, that you saw, life space crisis intervention. Um, I went out uh, and 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 uh, and and learned that, um, and then I I stumbled into uh, the Reclaiming Youth Institute out of uh, that was is still out of South Dakota with Larry Brentro, Martin Brokenleg, and um, uh, Martin Van Buren, uh, Van Brocken, uh, who who really do some fantastic work with with. Uh, with troubled kids um, and, and, and went out and, and brought those kinds of trainings back, uh, designed some trainings. Uh, uh, we were able to have um, our new teachers, um, uh, the new hires uh, spend three days in, in that kind of training uh, before we even would put them into a classroom uh, to really give them a kind of an understanding uh, was also at that time, and I know we have uh, talked about this, uh, you and I, uh, where I became, uh, um, uh, I first learned about uh, uh, Crisis Prevention Institute training, the CPI training, uh, and how I played with that uh, 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 to really kind of uh, 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 do much different than what I walked into. I walked into a a school that uh, was in existence that was in, you know, really a control mechanism school. Uh, you know, we I, there were classrooms with with cubie holes all over the place, separating kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it was a it was um, uh, a great ten years <laughs> um, uh, of really uh, beginning to take it from that obedience model. Right. Uh, over toward a, a much different way of handling troubled kids. So change is hard, right? And, and, and you know, well, I'm sure. Um, so when you come in and you say, hey, we're going to treat kids with a high level of dignity and respect, and people are like, oh, you don't know the kids we're working with. And, um, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing and just venturing a guess here, but, you know, as you're trying to move in a different direction, that there were some that were on board, mm-hmm. some that were, questioning and some that were probably resistant uh some that might have even decided hey you know it's time for me to leave <laughs> you know you never know but but what kind of resistance did you run into how long did it take you to really affect a meaningful change um you know you were there for 10 years so what what, what did it look like in in practice when you began to uh try to bring these approaches into um you know life there um it it uh, was a three to five year process okay um, and um, it's it really began with with first um, having the opportunity to control the professional development of stu- of teachers mm-hmm. uh, in the place 
Um, and, and one of the deals I really made with teachers is um, you try some of this stuff that I'm, I'm kind of sharing with you and we're talking about and and call me as soon as you feel like things are getting out of control uh, and I'll come. Um, so I created a crisis team. Um, because our school, I mean, we did have really troubled kids. We had crises. There's no question about it. Uh, but I wanted to take um, um, the fear of losing control away from teachers. And I tried to do that by suggesting you try this. If things start even getting a little bit out of control uh, as kids start uh, escalating, just call. We'll be there. Uh, I'd spent no time in my office with people there. Um, I was out and about in the hallways and, and, and really that was the deal that I made. Uh, I wanted to connect with kids. Um, and I, I wanted to learn the hardest kids first. Um, and I wanted to establish relationships with them quickly so that if I were to walk into a classroom and I could say, Hey, Johnny, come with me. Um, and most of the time, Johnny might, um, I, I'm in good shape because um, I needed both the, the staff and the students to understand our job is to fix this problem. Um, <laughs> let's let's not escalate it. Um, so it was a lot. Of, and, and it was also a lot of back and forth with this with the teachers um, and really kind of understanding what's underneath the behaviors they're dealing with as well as how best we can do these uh, these things. Mm-hmm. And, and no doubt you may have had to work harder with certain teachers as well to, to bring them along with you. Got to um, be honest, uh, we had to ask some teachers to leave. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, and, and, and that's okay. This work is not for everybody right, teaching. Right, um, right. And, but yet, yeah, I mean, yes, uh, you know, uh, it, uh, and, you know, uh, um, I think um, I don't focus on really the um, the teachers that is are as much entrenched as those middle ones you'd explained that right. are not sure. Right. Okay, right, right, what, right. What is this all about? Um, yeah. And yeah. those are the, those are the group I really want to uh, kind of begin to say, hey, let's try this. Right. Right. And, and were there I mean. You know, imagining kind of the, the scenario that you were in, uh, you know, did you did you have people that came to you a couple of years in and said, you know, uh, Michael, I wasn't so sure where you were heading. But, you know, you know, we've seen a positive difference. Did, did you see some of those people shift, you know, along the way and begin to understand why the approach that you were bringing in was so critical? Uh, I would say absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, I still I'm still in touch with uh, many of those teachers um, uh, that that uh, we worked with for a little bit over a decade there. And uh, and um, actually, uh, we, we were able to do some interesting things. I mean, even as far as as being able to um, uh, to bring in some uh, uh, some experts in the mental health field that could could evaluate the medicine that these young people were on. I mean, we had kids on on so many different meds that you weren't really even sure, you know, what the baseline was. So, right, I mean, we, right. we were able to start doing some pretty, I think, pretty good work um, around, uh, around those kind of issues. Uh, uh, and the other thing I think we got good at is when, when uh, the advantage of having an entire building like that um, is, is, <clears throat> 
I was able to match kids with teachers mm-hmm. personality wise almost and developmentally, right. um, which is also um, sometimes not uh, not possible. Uh, right. When I walk into some schools, it's almost like there's one class and everybody's in it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, geez, uh, you know, this 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 need the dynamics in here just do not work, mm-hmm. you know, because not all teachers are good with everything. Right. 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 But, but or, or, or may have their own experiences and own triggers. And sure. Know, there are certain kids that just can. can yeah. You know, and, and, clash, you know, and, and that's true of adults, right? I mean, there's oh, adults that I clashed with. <laughs> absolutely, and those matches, um, I think, were really helpful, even right. developmentally. What kind of kids? Um, right. and, and once I got to know my staff really well, that it was easier and easier to do. Yeah, yeah. My my son is uh, now a senior in high school. Uh, he's been going to a uh, non-public school in the state that that we helped to select. Uh, but the the one thing I love about the school is they do what you're talking about. They they're very thoughtful in terms of making matches between staff and, and kids, and it can make all the difference in the world. Um, really great to see. So you know you go in, you make this change. You're there for ten years, um, and of course one of the things that we see today is that um, there are a lot of people out there. There are a lot of amazing educators out there. Uh, a lot of trauma-informed educators out there, a lot of people um, doing the program we talked about earlier with, with Lori, a lot of great people doing fantastic work. Uh, but, you know, um, when troubles begin to arise, uh, people go to what they know. And we still see a lot of people that are convinced that the answer to any, um, you know, any stress-related behaviors or any diff- kinds of difficulty is control, compliance, punitive approaches. Um, so things can quickly change as well uh, to go back to uh, old ways. How do we do more to prevent that? How, I mean, you know, and, and maybe I'm asking you a question that, that <laughs> maybe there's not a good answer for, but, you know, I mean, these past two years, we knew we were going to be difficult. We knew as kids got back to school after the pandemic, after being out of school, um, you know, we could have predicted, and I know many did. I mean, I remember Lori saying, you know, when p- kids go back to school after COVID, it's going to be a challenge. Uh, I'm sure you saw that as well. Yet, even though that challenge was known to be coming, um, it seems to have caught a lot of people off guard. And that the, the tendency sometimes is to double down in the things that aren't working. So it's doubling down in restraint, seclusion, suspension, expulsion, corporal punishment. We saw a, a district in Missouri who, after 20 years, brought back corporal punishment this year. I just uh, saw that. Yeah, yeah, horrid. But how do we how do we counter that? How do we move uh, and and prevent that from happening? Because you know you get all this great work, you can really shift a school, and then leadership comes in and they have a different idea. It's pretty difficult, but a good question. Um, uh, you're absolutely right. Nineteen states in the United States still allow paddling in schools and public right. schools in America. Um, that obedience model is pretty entrenched. Um, I think um, I think our training um, uh, of, of both teachers and school leaders is lacking um, in this area. Um, so we what we have is 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 uh, people walking around actually with with high levels of paper, master's degrees, doctorate degrees, uh, and yet, yet not, not very much grounding in, 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 in child development and, and best practices with, with young people. I think, um, I think a couple of things uh, will help. Um, 
Uh, some changes at the State Department level are still needed, uh, depending on what state you're in. I know um, in many states, uh, as schools began to reopen, uh, the, the state issue was on uh, catching kids back up. They're all behind. Right, it's right, the end right, of the world. Right. Yep, yep. Well, that's certainly not where you want to start. And right. yet, you know, if, if that's where, where the directive comes down, you know, to your superintendent, down to your principals, and then down to your teachers, uh, we begin right away with, oh, my God, let's, let's test these kids and try to catch them up right. academically. Um, not, you know, I mean, just really talk about uh, a, a top-down right. brain, brain uh, strategy that instead of the bottom-up, is the exact opposite of what what needed to be done and, and is continuing to be done. Um, mm-hmm. So I think I think um, we need to really rethink the whole idea of of uh, of what are schools for. Um, you know, uh, I think COVID did show uh, society the need is greater in schools than just academics. I mean, we were feeding kids. We were uh, mm-hmm. we were trying to keep things open. I think I think schools did a heroic effort shifting uh, in like two days from uh, right. uh, from from what they do to not. But but I think, you know, I think I think there still might be a little opportunity uh, to use this crisis as an opportunity to do some things differently, but uh, but at least the states I'm familiar with uh, at the Department of Ed levels are not going there. They're they're mm-hmm. still really focused on measuring kids and making sure right. they grow academically, which right. uh, which really hasn't really worked much at all uh, uh, since the standards movement started uh, in earnest around the year 2000. We're into mm-hmm. it almost 20 a good 20 years. And uh, mm-hmm. I haven't seen uh, anything that um, uh, I, I don't think it's helped much at all. Right. 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 Great point. You mentioned earlier that um, before, you, when you brought new teachers on, you had them going through three days of training. Mm-hmm. Um, if if Michael had a magic wand and, and could require that every new teacher have uh, certain training, what training is it that you think would be critical to all teachers that are getting ready to come into the classroom or, or even to put this differently um, to our teachers that are out there listening. Cause we have a lot of educators that are part of our, our community. Um, what would you recommend to them? Are there certain trainings that you would recommend that they consider? And I know, and of course you offer training, so don't feel bad about well, offering your own training. No, as well. well, one of the, I mean, what, you know, the question really brings us really into some of the, some of the work Lori and I have been doing. Um, right. And we kind of stumbled on like, okay, uh, we can't go to every school in the world. So one of the things Lori and I talked about uh, was the creation of these school resiliency teams, mm-hmm. uh, where those school resiliency teams uh, would come spend three days with Lori and I, um, and um, and and and, um, and they're tasked to learn that and then go back and turn key it seated in their buildings. Um, mm-hmm. uh, we required an, an administrator to be part of that team. Uh, we and and anybody else that they wanted to bring with them uh, that felt comfortable enough learning material and sharing in front of their peers. Um, we also required those schools to um, uh, to do um, uh, uh, some cultural surveys, uh, uh, perceptual surveys from from kids, um, from parents, and from their staff. Uh, so they got a sense. What we're looking for in a nutshell is school connectedness. 
um, who's really connected to schools. Um, trauma is a chronic disruption of connectedness. Uh, so we really want to look at how how is the soil in that building? Mm-hmm. Uh, those those resiliency teams we started in um, in 2018 here in New Jersey. Um, we've uh, th- we've done them uh, through 2020, um, and and uh, with COVID we even did it online. And in th- those number of years, I think we've ended up training uh, close to 1,100 teachers. Uh, and once once we went online, it just opened it up completely. Uh, and at least we were beginning to seed the work. Um, uh, when we started, um, adverse childhood experiences were not known by most schools. Uh, now it's pretty common that most schools have heard about adversity in kids. Um, we teach them a little bit about how the brain learns best and the neuroscience that, that Lori teaches at Butler. Um, we teach them a, a, a bit of, um, of, of, of just a little bit about everything, but we really work on making that, that connections with kids um, and really being able to systematically begin that work. Um, mm-hmm. um, now, now, how do we follow that up becomes our next question. Um, and that's where I started with, um, uh, with um, this past summer, a, a two-day, uh, I call it a, a trauma-responsive school and classroom leadership class um, uh, that kind of combines a, a lot of the work that Lori and I were doing together and have played with over the years. Uh, and then what you saw at the top tier on uh, the life space stuff, uh, crisis intervention, which mm-hmm. we see, I, I see as at least a top tier uh, intervention uh, that really is designed um, to regulate kids um, rather than escalate kids and ending up having to to restrain as restrain them. As far as seclusion goes, no child should ever be left alone in, in any room or area uh, without without an adult. Um, and and uh, I, you know we still don't even get great counts of the use of restraint right, in, right. In, in in our schools. I don't think that's a bad thing to start really tracking well mm-hmm. uh, and get a sense of what that's like. Um, um, my guess is with um, the more and more that we've included uh, more and more kids, the higher those rates could be. Mm-hmm. So I want to pause for a second and just sure. remind people that are watching, because it's very easy for me to get uh, uh, a little carried away with my questions. Okay. I, have, I have a million questions, but I want to let you know if you're watching live right now, um, we do have some time for your questions. So feel free to put questions in the chat. We've got you know, probably about another 10 or 15 minutes or so. Uh, so if you have questions, you know, put those in the chat now and I'll try to steer myself away from my own questions <laughs> and get, get to a couple of those. Uh, with that said, since I don't have a question right now, um, tell me a little bit more. So I had the opportunity this summer to uh, join you in New Jersey for the Life Spaces Crisis Intervention Training, uh, which was a great opportunity, not only to, to take the training, but to, to meet you and uh, to, to get to an opportunity to learn from the work that you've been doing, which was really, I mean, you know, inspiring. And I think it was there. I was like, Michael, we've got to get you, you know, interviewed as well. Um, tell me a little bit about LSCI. I know you mentioned kind of some of the connections that you made along the way and how that led you to the work of LSCI. But tell us a little bit about what LSCI is uh, and, and what that training is all about. Um, Life Space Crisis Intervention um, 
has been around a long time. It comes, uh, well, one of the other things I did, uh, it dawned on me after about three years of, uh, of, of teaching troubled kids was the realization that, uh, that I can't be the first teacher in, in the history of the world to teach troubled kids. Mm-hmm. Um, then I started to do some research around uh, the history of, of people that work worked with troubled kids, uh, finding even people like Maria Montessori, uh, who, who uh, is, is, is famous now for her Montessori schools, but, but Montessori started teach, uh, her teaching career um, with what she called street urchins in Italy. Um, mm. I, you know, so um, I, I was digging around and I uh, and I found a, a book actually uh, at a yard sale. And the title of the book was Ch- Ch- Children Who Hate. And I'm like, oh, this uh, was my like my third year of teaching and not doing really good. And and uh, I'm like, oh, geez, I think I have a few of these kids that, that uh, and I picked it up. It was by Fritz Rettel. Um, uh, and and I'm like, wow, this is interesting. And Rattle um, uh, was working uh, at the University of Michigan um, with kids out of Detroit back in the uh, early 50s. Uh, uh, and uh, Rattle developed a technique called life space in interviewing with these young people. Um, his student, uh, my my mentor, Dr. Nicholas Long, along with Dr. Larry Brentrew, who was, who was also one of his students, uh, really um, uh, picked up Rettel's work, worked for him, worked with him, um, and and took what they saw Rettel doing with these pretty pretty troubled kids that seemed to be working and, and operationalized it so it could be taught. Uh, and what Rattle and, and, and Long put together uh, was the recognition that, um, that young people have patterns, all people have patterns in their behavior. Um, and those patterns can be really predictable. Um, and they usually don't change patterns. And if you think of your own behavior, we're pretty routinized uh, as human beings. We have different patterns. Here's what I do when I'm mad. Here's what I'm doing when I'm angry. Here's how I am when I'm happy. All those, and every kid's unique. Um, Rattle and Long were able to recognize in, in troubled children six patterns of thinking. Uh, and they developed LSCI um, uh, and the training, the verbal training that goes with it um, to really identify those six patterns. Um, to be able to work with young people, uh, to drain off their emotions, um, to be, uh, have adults become, and one of my favorite sayings is, is be a thermostat, not a thermometer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got to be, be calm when I'm dealing with young people. Um, and, then, and then really begin to drain off their emotions. Now adding the brain science, which wasn't there then, <laughs> get kids from the lower regions of their brain, drain them so that they're calm in the, and in their executive part of their brain so that we can problem solve together. Mm-hmm. And, and even during a crisis situation with that brain science, we walk in as an adult, I need to know my job is to take a, a, a young person that's in the lower regions of their brain and, and before we can solve anything, I've got to get them regulated enough 
so that we they can access the, their higher regions of thinking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Most teachers still don't know that, right? Um, right. And, and the and and so they step into having that uh, a, a young person that's in their amygdala region at fight flight freeze response easily triggered. And they become triggered. The kid triggers them. And that's when you have that crisis. <laughs> um, so that works really critical. And that's one of the, the strengths, I believe, of LSCI. And combined with the, the, what we now know about the neuroscience uh, is really powerful to at least um, give people a much different direction than, hey, you can't talk to me like that right, and, right. and getting right into it. Yeah, it, 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 brain science behind it, too. That's right. And, and that little bit of brain science, I think, is transformative. You know, I mean, yeah, a, no, a, yes. a very little bit. Yeah. Um, so um, and that's training that is offered through LSCI and you do the training as well um, mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. the. Uh, and one thing to point out here is that um, life spaces crisis intervention uh, is a training that does not involve the use of restraint or seclusion. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, usually when I hear the word, in fact, I think I told you this the first time I talked to him, like when I read Life Spaces Crisis Intervention, I imagined that there was some physical skills being taught there. It's not. It's really about how to how to what you said, you know, work with kids and help them reach their, their cortex and problem solve with them. Mm -hmm. uh, so certainly a, a far better approach to crisis management that so often is just this reactive piece that mm -hmm. is only dealing with things after they've gotten to a point where things have really gotten out of uh you know, kind of moving in the wrong direction. And of course, you do other types of training as well. You mentioned the resiliency team. You also uh, teach at uh, Stockton University. And, yes. and what kind of things are you teaching there? Um, the course I teach is uh, an introduction to special education for mostly future teachers, although um, although there's some people that are uh, studying other things that also take take the class. Uh, and, and I've been able to uh, supplement uh, some trauma-informed stuff and into that work um, so that um, these young people are able to, to at least get a, a sense of um, what, what adversity does to, to young people, what it looks like behaviorally. Um, and what we can do differently with it. And then it's pretty much a broad overview of, of, uh, of special education in New Jersey and the different classifications. Um, it is really the only formal class in New Jersey that, that future teachers need to, to, to get um, in, their, in their teacher prep, which is not sufficient. Um, in, in either case for trauma or, or for special education. And yet that's kind of the state we're in now. Uh, uh, but at least I think uh, I leave young people with the idea that, uh, uh, that they're going to have to pursue this learning. I give them ways to do that um, uh, and, and, uh, and, and, and at least try to move them forward and, and give them a, a little bit of a better start than I had. <laughs> yeah, 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 you know, it might be uh, might be uh, great if you could uh, develop some uh, elective courses that uh, yeah. could be offered for teachers that want to dive sure. in, even if it's a matter of they they already have enough uh, credits. Um, you know, may, maybe there's some opportunity there at some point. Mm -hmm. uh, I do have a question here from Chantel. Uh, Chantel is actually a volunteer here with the Alliance, and uh, let me read this. It's a, a little bit long. Uh, I'm about to meet. So Chantel's in Canada, in fact, was just recently okay. uh, featured in a story in Canada uh, on CTV W5, uh, which, from my understanding, is kind of like 60 minutes uh, in Canada. 
Uh, and Chantel said, I'm about to meet with a New Brunswick child and youth advocate about the issue of restraint seclusion in schools as a systemic issue. If we were to put out a survey of parents, students, school staff, and community members to shed light on the, this issue for child and youth advocates, what would be the most important information you think that we should ask? So I, I guess what she's really asking you is that knowing that they're going to put out a survey of, of parents and, and uh, students and staff, uh, what might be helpful to kind of help um, them uh, highlight some of the issues or what might be missing, um, I guess is what I'm thinking. So I'm, I'm adding some of my own thoughts here, but mm -hmm. what might you ask of educators uh, to gauge the temperature of, of where they're at or, uh, you know? Uh, you know, I think I'd start with students um, and I'd be asking students things, um, uh, questions that really concern uh, how they feel in school, how they like school, how they how they get along with their peers in school, uh, just to kind of get a sense of what their, you know, seven hours of the day is like, uh, those uh, kind of perceptual questions. Uh, uh, I'd be asking parents similar questions about how how they feel about the entire school. Is it supportive of their kids' needs? Uh, uh, do they address issues if it's brought up? Uh, how do they feel about the instruction of, 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 and the climates? How do they feel about the discipline handbook in the school? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you look at most traditional school discipline policies, and and uh, and and what you see is just page and page and page of rules on one side, and consequences on the other side. I mean, literally, if we counted them, there'd be hundreds by high school, hallway behavior, lunchroom behavior, bus behavior. You know, so again, that's um, an indication that that we're doing obedience. It's like, here, here, you do this, or we do this. Um, those kind of things are, uh, are, are, are ways to get a sense of the current, um, current status of a program. For teachers, I'd ask um, a different question. I'd ask how supportive they, how supportive they feel the administration is in the building, uh, what they think of their training. Um, what they think of their professional development, what they think they need more of or less of, um, and what their biggest issues with with young people are. That's always a great question. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, that, that was some uh, some great insight. Uh, you know, I was thinking about it, and I think the, the first thing you mentioned kind of resonated, you know, kind of uh, was something that my brain had gotten to, but I hadn't gotten any of the, the rest of this. Um, so that's really great and really helpful. Um all right, so um, we are running just about at time here okay. and uh, just want to see if there's anything else that you would like to share. I mean, what, what I've heard from you is about continuing to continuing to learn. Uh, what I've heard from you is about relationship, about seeing kids differently, um, you know, about the, the little bit of a brain science that can really make a difference, about understanding trauma. Um, what else might you leave a, let's start with a parent, um, you know, a parent of a child who is having a difficult time in school, who might not be getting supported appropriately. What might you say to a parent that finds themselves in that situation? As a parent, I think it's important to reach out to, to your student's teacher and try to form a positive relationship with that teacher early. 
Um, when I work with teachers, I, I always tell them, hey, make a contact with the parent first before you even meet the child mm-hmm. uh, and, and have that open door. But if that's not occurring, I think I think parents can 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 help themselves with trying to reach out and, and making make that connection. Uh, even if it's for a few minutes or, uh, and, and, and really wanting to meet or, or, or email, uh, to, to, uh, talk a little bit about their, their child and their child's strengths. Um, those kind of things are important. Even if it's a, a one page, uh, uh, I like doing a one page student, student, almost intro kind of pieces mm-hmm. of paper, uh, mm-hmm. with their interests, their strengths, what they like, uh, their hobbies, uh, you know, the TV shows they watch. Uh, it's just really helpful, I think, um, uh, to create that sense of, of getting to know this child quicker for the mm-hmm. teacher. So mm-hmm. I think those kind of things are fun for parents. Um, you know, so I think that's not a bad way to go. I do yeah, yeah. leave with a hopeful message from the yep. resiliency research, which you know, when we look at, um, at the resiliency research, which is now, gosh, almost 50 years old, um, the resiliency research is quite clear. Um, they it, it determined that one connection over time can literally change the direction of students' lives. Um, so, so the critical importance of, of that connection um, and teachers are well situated to make those connections, but it doesn't just have to be teachers, coaches, um, teachers, aides, bus drivers, uh, you know, dance instructors, uh, or, you know, uh, but that uh, uh, when when researchers talk to kids that really have struggled and come out of pretty bad backgrounds, um, uh, when they talk to them, all of them indicate at least one adult over time um, and that, as, as Yuri says, is irra- were, was irrationally crazy about them, um, that really got to know them, um, got to show them things in themselves that they didn't see themselves at that time. Mm-hmm. That's the power of teachers um, to literally change the direction of kids' lives. Absolutely. And to reflect back to those children their strengths. We mm-hmm. spend too much time on their weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Um, reflect. I mean, I've never met a child that didn't have strengths. Uh, find them and reflect them back to those kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I would leave teachers with, um, the power to really change lives. Well, you, you, you were one step ahead of me because that was kind of my question for you is, is what you would leave teachers with, because we know these have been tough times. Uh, sure. You know, there, there are teachers that have gotten into the uh, field that uh, came in with a lot of excitement who are feeling, you know, burnout and unsupported and, and, and ready to leave. And, and, you know, I've met fantastic teachers that aren't getting the support that they need to, mm-hmm. to be able to be successful. And, uh, you mm-hmm. know, so that's wonderful advice. Uh, listen, Michael, I really appreciate you making time uh, to, to talk with us today. Um, you know, as I said, kind of as we got started here, I, I always enjoy these conversations quite a bit. Uh, and uh, it looks like we've had a lot of uh, people leaving comments as we've gone here. Um, and I think right. that your your words of wisdom through your, uh, you know, career are, are certainly uh, helpful. Uh, and again, you, you we mentioned the the books that you've been involved with as well. You have you have anything else in the works here in terms of uh, any additional writing or uh, uh, projects that you're working on coming up? Uh, not yet, but I'm thinking about one. So we'll have to stay tuned. Uh, okay. 
so that'll be fun too. So I really um, appreciate guy. Um, thank you very much for the offer of, uh, of getting to talk with you and uh, it was great meeting you and great talking with you as usual. Absolutely. Uh, really appreciate it, uh, M Michael. And uh, we'll, we'll make it not the, uh, uh, not the last time we do it. Uh, L Lori, you know, through her um, uh, generosity has, uh, I think she's, I think she's been our number one guest in terms of the most appearances. Okay. You know, and just every once in a while, Lori would say, Hey, yeah, I get this idea. And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> oh, I, I might be dragging you back on again uh, for another one, but it looks like Anytime. Uh, uh, my friend Gail here in Australia said, thank you. Uh, Chantel, who you answered that question for uh, amazing conversation. Really appreciate it. I'm going to let you go, Michael, but uh, I have an announcement for everybody else. So you take care and uh, I'll be in touch with you again soon. Appreciate it. Good seeing everybody. Thanks for everybody for coming in and joining us and listening. See you later. Absolutely. Take care. All right. And for those of you who are still left, uh, just to mention real quickly, uh, we have, uh, of course, another event coming up in two weeks. And I just wanted to let you know about that event. We will be talking with Dr. Dustin Springer, who is a administrator. Uh, in a school in Kansas, if I'm not mistaken here. If I'm wrong, then I'm getting in trouble. Uh, but uh, he's got a great presentation here. Uh, you're getting on my nerves, understanding and addressing dysregulation through the lens of applied educational neuroscience. Uh, so that's coming up on November 17th. Uh, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Uh, in the meantime, uh, appreciate everybody joining us today. And we will see you again very soon. Take care. Good night.